We are in Luke chapter 3 this morning, and we hope that you have your Bibles. And if you don't, feel free to use the Bible that's under the seat in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that one home with you. As we are making our way through the Gospel of Luke here on Sunday morning, and we've come to that moment now where we have been ramping up and preparing for the launching of the ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. We have now traveled through time from the end of chapter 2, verse 52, to chapter 3, verse 1, about a period of 17 years. And as a result, now, John the Baptist is being commissioned to now prepare the way for the Messiah, the one in whom the nation of Israel had been waiting these uh, millennia for. And as he prepares the way, he also introduces the understanding of what the arrival of the Messiah means to the people of Israel. When we see the first coming or the first advent of Christ, we see it as a Savior coming into the world, and that's right to think so. But notice that when John the Baptist introduces the first coming of the Messiah, he associates it with judgment. Now, of course, Jesus says, I have not come into this world to condemn the world, for the world has already been condemned, but I've come to save those in the world. But what did John mean by the introduction of judgment concerning the arrival of the Messiah? What does it mean for us today? What does it mean as we live in the possible, the the beginning of the sunshine, uh, or the dawning, I should say, of the return of Jesus Christ. What does this judgment mean? We must understand that when we in Western culture think of judgment, we think of the punishment of sin. We think of the holding one accountable, seeing one guilty and convicted. This is the type of judgment that we see. And of course, that is a portion of what biblical judgment is all about. But biblical judgment isn't doesn't exist within a vacuum in itself, there's always accompanied with it the restoration that God brings after the judgment. The judgment is to correct things and the restoration is to bring things back to where God would have them. As you make your way through the book of Revelation, you discover from Revelation chapter 6 to chapter 19, the, the judgment of God upon this world and the return of Jesus Christ in chapter 19. But then Revelation doesn't end there, does it? We have chapters 20, 21, and 22 that tell us about a new earth, a new heaven that is birthed out of the judgment in which God brought upon this earth. All things are new. All things are brand new, etc. In the first coming of the Messiah, it was an act of judgment upon the world because now the world was going to be forced with the decision to decide who Jesus is. And either you're for him or against him, right? There's no middle ground to occupy. But in the wake of that decision will determine if you will have everlasting life or everlasting death. So a savior to some, but a judge to others. 
But again, when we talk about biblical judgment, especially when we talk about it from uh, the Old Testament standards, we have to understand that what God did in the wake of the judgment in which he brought upon his people was also to bring about a restoration for his people. So let's look at it as in its totality and not just in a portion. And so now we come. It is the 15th year of the reign of Caesar Tiberius a real character. He was the stepson of Caesar Augustus. He was one of the most corrupt individuals that ever ruled the Roman Empire. He was so corrupt that no one had confidence within his leading. He had his favorites that surrounded him, and if you weren't part of those favorites, you really didn't, didn't have his ear or his concern whatsoever. He was unapproachable. He was one who dealt harshly with individuals. And mercy, I don't believe, was found in his vocabulary. Pontius Pilate has now been sent to Israel to govern Israel from Jerusalem there and also watch over the area of Judea because the first method that the Romans tried to instill was to divide the nation of Israel into four different uh, areas and put tetriarchs over each one of those areas, thinking that further dividing the people would help suppress an uprising or from the people, and it was a complete failure. So Pontius Pilate was also required to be there as further oversight on behalf of the Roman Empire. The tetriarchs weren't enough in and of themselves. This is why the tetriarchs were hated by the people, because they were Roman-appointed. And therefore, they served Rome rather than serving the Jewish people. And of course, Pontius Pilate being in Jerusalem was a constant reminder that they had lost their sovereignty in the world. And if that wasn't bad enough, the political system, as corrupt as it was, was only shadowed by the corruption of the religious system. For now we find ourselves with two high priests, Ananias and Caiaphas, related. Ananias didn't get along with the Herods, he didn't get along with the Romans, so they ousted him. So they put in Caiaphas, and there was one in between, and I forget his name now, but then they put in Caiaphas, and Caiaphas related to Ananias, he Ananias pulled the strings from behind the curtain as the wizard from the Wizard of Oz would. And Caiaphas was just a spokesperson, but Ananias was the one controlling everything. Now, this was completely, uh, completely opposite of the design in which God had set forth for the religious system there in Jerusalem. So the very first thing that Luke does for us in the first few verses is not only give us a timeline to give us an idea of where we are historically, but to show us and to demonstrate for us the corruption that is found at this time. Israel was a mess at this point. There wasn't any confidence or trust in any form of leadership whatsoever. And as a result, the people of Israel turned their back on God. They became discouraged. The zealots were more popular than the priests were, for they offered a degree of hope, of possible future, uh, freedom in the future, excuse me. And so in the midst of this turmoil, 
in the midst of this incredible depth of corruption, one individual begins crying out in the middle of the Jordanian wilderness. And he begins to call the people back to God, eating honey and locusts and and dressed in weird clothes. And all of a sudden, in the authority and the power in which John was given by God, as he was anointed by God to do so, people began to travel out into the wilderness to seek him out, to hear his words, to repent and to be baptized by him, turning their hearts back to their God and repenting of their sins and preparing the way for the Messiah. I think Luke, in the manner of his writing, shows us that it wasn't any of the hierarchy, it wasn't any of the political or religious leaders in God who chose to do these things. It was through the people and the instruments that God had chosen to do these things. He is now revealing himself to the people who would listen and to repent uh, and turn their hearts back to God in this troublesome time in which they find themselves. But I believe that we here in the United States can also identify with political corruption, religious corruption, moral failures by men in the pulpits across America that has just seemed to reach climactic proportions. And yet, God is still working amongst it all. And I believe that Luke sets the stage for us to let us know that the arrival of the Messiah is not only to bring about salvation, which we could, we could praise him for for now and forever, but also now to set things right once again. Christ's first coming was the dawning of a new age that allowed God to now begin to set things right that will climax with the new heaven and the new earth. And John is now preparing the way. And the corruption that we see, God is going to deal with it. The issues that we see that people seem to be getting away with, God is going to deal with. God is going to deal with these things as he sets things right, as he always designed them to be. And in the wake of that judgment, he is going to restore and return the world to a place where sin and death has never touched it. In verse 1 of chapter 3, the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetriarch of uh, of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetriarch of the region of uh, Ituria, and Tachonitis, and Lysanias, tetriarch of Alabin, during the high priesthood of Ananias and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And so it begins. The sun is about to rise, and John is preparing the way. And as John begins to prepare the way, the word of the Lord after a 400-year period of silence is now going to break through the silence of that time 
calling the nation back to repentance, back to God, and allowing for a restoration of the nation of Israel that would have come to pass at that time if Jesus would have been received as their Messiah at that time. But God fully knew that he was going to be rejected from the very beginning, and the restoration of Israel will take place in the millennial kingdom. And we find in in Revelation 20, and also outlined and detailed for us in Isaiah and other portions of the Old Testament. But this is the beginning of it all. And in verse 3, he went into all the regions around Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The Israelites, again, were so discouraged. They had no confidence in their leadership. As Jesus confronted the religious leaders later in his ministry, we discover that, of course, it was the blind leading the blind. He says, not only do you not enter into the kingdom of heaven, but not those who follow you don't either. He showed the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. He called out the corruption as he cleansed the temple. He demonstrated that there was a new leader in in town, a new mediator between man and God, and it was him, Christ Jesus. And as a result, people came out to hear him. Verse 4, and this is what he preached as he was calling people to repentance for the forgiveness of of sin. Baptism was a rite of Judaism, but it wasn't practiced by those who were Jewish. Baptism was given to those who were proselytes from the Gentile regions. They were then baptized into Judaism, into the covenant. Jewish people being baptized in this fashion is quite unusual, and scholars debate it. But it appears that he is saying that you are so far from God that you have to remember who you are. That is a key under, point of understanding when we're, if we're going to understand the Gospels properly. I believe that as the identity of the individual Jewish person diminished with the suppression of not only the Greeks prior to the Roman occupancy... The language had been lost, and that's why Paul says, when I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, he is saying that I was unwilling to move to the Greek language. I wanted to keep my identity as a Hebrew, as a Jewish man. I didn't want to be assimilated into these empires from the Greek to the Romans and so forth. And most of the land had at that time. Then they were divided into four different regions to further suppress their national identity. Their sovereignty was taken from them so they could no longer execute one they found guilty according to their law. And it would continue on and on and on. The Romans were so unique in the fact that they would allow for a certain degree of history and heritage to be remembered by the people in which they dominated. But in every area that really mattered and counted, they would erase that social identity, that historical identity, that heritage that these people had. In one day, hoping that they would just assimilate into the Roman Empire and so forth. Very interesting in its procedure. But the Jewish people wanted to refute this at every point and moment they could. They wanted to remain Jewish individuals. They wanted to remain uh, the people of God. They wanted to remain uh, understood as the stewards of the oracles and the things of God and so forth. They wanted to keep that national heritage. 
And so God is, I'm saying through John, God is calling them back to repentance, asking them to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, which undoubtedly looks forward to the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. But in, in this case, we will discover that John's baptism isn't the baptism that they are ultimately waiting for. It is the baptism that comes through Jesus Christ. And then he identifies himself with that of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, in verse 4. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. This is a quote directly from Isaiah chapter 40 verses 1 through 5. Mark that, go back and take a look at it for yourself. They begin with words of comfort in verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah 40. And then from 3 to 5, these words are again stated verbatim from the original quotation in Isaiah by John. He is making the way straight, preparing the way for the coming king. When a king came to any particular location, he would always send a herald in, before that, to make sure that the way was prepared, and number two, the recipients were ready to receive him at the time of his arrival. So not only was John preparing the way, but he was also preparing the people for the reception of their Messiah. When a king, when a herald went before a king, it was usually a herald and then three or four others with him, And they would make straight the path of the king. They would literally travel the same roads that the king would travel. And if there was any rough areas, they would remove stones that may throw the cart. They would fill potholes. And this is why a king never came to Chicago. You know, we don't have potholes, do we? We have meteor craters in Chicago, don't we? I think I lost, I think I saw a Honda Civic lost in one of them at one time. But anything that would keep the king from a smooth entry was eliminated by those who preceded him. And that's what these words reflect. In each way, an obstacle is made straight, showing and demonstrating that God is setting things in their proper order through the arrival of the Messiah. Dr. William MacDonald, who wrote a famous commentary called the Believer's Bible Commentary, very interestingly stated that there are many in church history who saw this not only as a physical preparation, but a spiritual one also. For the nation of Israel found themselves once again in a wilderness period. They found themselves distant from God, their hearts had turned hard against God, and so forth. And John was to not only cultivate the preparations for the arrival of the Messiah, but he was also to cultivate more specifically the hearts of the people for the arrival of the Messiah, who those people found themselves in a wilderness, distant from God. 
and in the preparation and making the path straight for the arrival of the Messiah, every valley which is depression shall be filled. And they saw in it, the early church fathers, they saw in it that those who were lacking and those who were unsatisfied with their relationship with God was about to be satisfied by the arrival of Messiah. This is exactly what Jesus reiterates in the Sermon of the Mount. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. Those that had haughtily prided themselves and put themselves above others were going to be brought to a position of humility before God in the arrival of the Messiah. The crooked, the corrupt, shall be made straight, and the rough places shall become smooth, level ways. In each case, of course, looking at this spiritually, the crooked, the corrupt, shall be made straight, and those who are rough and those who are distanced from God will be brought and their hearts and minds will be changed. For all flesh shall see the salvation of God, referring to the person of Jesus Christ being the salvation that God provides for his people. As we come to verse 7 now, his ministry begins. And we get a glimpse of his first sermon in which he preached. And he begins in a very unusual way. Obviously trying to win over his listeners. And he said, to their, he said therefore to the crowd that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers! Well, there, I guess he didn't go to uh, Tony Robbins' uh, How to Win People Over uh, with Loving Kindness. He was a fiery kind of guy. There are some who believe that he is directing these words specifically towards the religious, leader that, the religious leaders that possibly came out with the crowd. We don't know that. He just says he spoke to the crowd, and these are the words that he spoke, and this is what Luke gives us. Brood of vipers means son of snakes. Already, he has paved the way to speak into their life, you know. And then he asks them, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Very interesting. The arrival of the Messiah was a detriment to those who hung in the balance of judgment. When a farmer in Israel would go out to his land and want to plant the land uh, and, you know, of course, uh, sow the seed in which he wanted to harvest later in the year, he would have to be very careful not to uh, go about it half-heartedly or prematurely without preparing the land first and foremost. We know that hard land needs to be, you know, ground up, you know, the fallow ground, you know, you have to churn it over, you have to make it pliable and uh, available to receive the seed. But often when they were plowing up hard ground, something would happen. There would be a snake den. And so what they would do before they got the plow into the middle of that snake den and possibly be bitten by one of those snakes, what they would do is they would go through the field look for any kind of signs of burrowing where a snake den could possibly be. They would find some rubbish. They would find a bush that they had cut down or something. They would place it over the hole 
and light it on fire. And the fire apparently with the smoke would draw the snake or snakes out of the ground so they could be disposed of before digging up or plowing up the ground, the fallow ground to prepare to receive the seed. It's kind of like one of those cones you put in your ear. You light it on fire and it draws the earwax out. There's a pleasant sight for all of you. Uh, don't want to go there, but uh, they would do that. And this is what he is kind of referring to when he says, this, you son of snakes, who's warned you? Who's prepared this for you to escape the judgment that is to come? This is how he begins. Now, it would be easy to simply say, well, he's speaking to the religious leaders, but can we do that exegetically, knowing that all we have in our text is that he spoke to the crowds in this way? He was showing them, I believe, their hypocrisy. When Jesus approached the religious leaders in this manner, it was to draw out and for them to realize and to deal with the hypocrisy within their heart. If we take that passage and compare it to this one, it is very plausible that John was saying to the people, listen, you're hypocrites. You need to deal with your hypocrisy. You say one thing and do just the opposite. Now, this is key to our understanding of what follows next. They said one thing and they did just the opposite. The Jewish understanding of believing something was that a person would believe something and to ratify that belief, to verify that belief, the person would act upon what they say they believe. Does that make sense? It wasn't enough for them just to verbally say, I believe something. It must be evident in their person's life that they believe something. And as a result, notice what he says next. And this is why I believe that the concept of hypocrisy fits best. He says in verse 8, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say yourselves, Well, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Don't tell me that your national identity is enough to say that you're right with God. Don't tell me that you say you believe in God, act just the opposite. He says, now bear fruits. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. I want you to not only change your mind, but change your whole life in accordance with the change of your mind. When we talk about repentance, we are looking at a Greek word called monoteo. And in its context, it can be determined in one or two ways. Number one, a simple change of mind, where a person changes their mind. Or it can be a change of mind that leads to a change of action, which I believe is the more thorough definition of the word monoteo in the Greek. Repentance means more than just feeling bad, feeling sorry, having a degree of remorse. Embarrassed you got caught. Repentance means that You are coming to God, confessing your sins, leaving them there, turning from them, and are now going to act and walk in complete opposite nature to the way you once walked within them. 
And so he says now, let your repentance be proven by the fruit in which you bear. Don't just talk about it. Just don't be baptized and think this is sufficient. Don't tell me that your national identity, because you've been circumcised as a Jewish person, or that because you're a child of Abraham in the uh, nation of Israel, that this is sufficient before God, for it is not. And look at what he says here in verse 9. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Does that sound familiar to you? When you get to John 15, Jesus expounds upon this. It's caused a lot of confusion in the body of Christ. But those who would not bear good fruit and they only bared bad fruit would determine that they were a bad tree. And in that culture, they would have fully understood John's illustration that those bad trees have to be removed so the good trees can grow further. And the bad trees, therefore, will be cast into fire and used for that purpose because they are not bringing forth good fruit. The arrival of Jesus Christ will not allow an individual to continue in a state of hypocrisy before God. Either you're true to God or you are not. And he is stating here that the fruit in which you bear will determine where you actually stand before God. Not what you simply say with your mouth. You know, uh, Jesus said to the people, you know, your lips, they draw close to me, but your hearts are way far from me. It's not sufficient to simply articulate. What is needed is the evidence of the new birth in Jesus Christ. What's evident is that the heart is right before the Lord. Now, I don't want anybody to confuse what I'm saying. We are not proposing a works gospel. We are saved by grace alone, by faith alone, through Christ alone. Amen? That's what's right there. But true salvation of an individual will bring forth fruit. Sometimes that fruit will be very small and you got to take out the old fruit inspector, you know, and just say, but it's there, you know, praise God. And it takes time for that fruit to grow, doesn't it? But an individual who says they say they believe in Jesus Christ, but all you see from their life is bad fruit. Can you honestly believe or reassure them of their salvation? I can't. Remember what Jesus told us that many would hear the gospel, but only one out of the four who heard it, it will truly come to fruition within their life. Showing me that there's a lot who hear it, but it doesn't have its full effect upon them, and therefore they are not truly saved before him. And as a result, John is now calling out the hypocrisy of the people. And notice what they say. They fully understood what he was proposing to them. And the crowds asked him, Now notice, there is no mention of religious leaders. Once again, it's the crowd who responds. And look at what Luke gives us. What then shall we do? What is sufficient to show that we have repented properly before God? What shall we do? Now that's always a catchphrase. There are always people who want to ask the question, what shall I do to be saved? Believe on Jesus Christ. Repent and believe on Jesus Christ. That's what you must do. 
and the natural work of the new birth will make itself manifest in the person's life as time goes on. It is not by works. But they, more specifically, are saying, what is evidence of true repentance? What shall we do? Verse 11. And he answered them, whoever has two tunics to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. The first fruit of true repentance would be generosity amongst them. Generosity. At this particular time, the Jewish people were very, very possessive because they were losing everything. And John says that this action of generosity will speak as a uh, illustration and a witness to all that you have changed as a person. The natural reaction would be to hoard everything for themselves. The supernatural new birth repented attitude would be be generous, trusting God for their provision. That's what he's saying here. But then the tax collectors. Now these were hated even more, even more than the Romans because the Jewish people felt that they were traitors. They were being paid by Rome. They were stealing extra taxes from the people uh, to supplement their income even further. They were hated. The tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And look at what John says in verse 13. And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Again, acting in contrary nature to the natural understanding of a tax collector. An honest tax collector is like finding an honest lawyer or a politician who doesn't lie. Okay? And so immediately they would notice that they are acting contrary to their natural inclinations. And then in verse 14, uh, soldiers also asked him, these are not probably Roman soldiers, but temple guards. I don't think Romans would have consulted John on these issues. Um, But the temple guards who were already having difficulty. Because the people of Israel were so discouraged by the corruption of the religious leaders their giving was way down. And one of the first individuals of the temple not to receive their payments were the temple guards. And so what the temple guards did is that they took whatever power they had to exhort money out of people in which they had authority over. And so John says to them, as they ask, And what shall we do? And he said to them, do not exhort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, but be content with your wages. Again, acting contrary to the natural perception of how these people would act. Again, we as believers in Jesus Christ should act in contrary fashion to the individuals who are in the world, should we not? We should walk in light rather than continuing to walk in darkness. Our lives should be a testimony and a witness 
of the new birth that is within us. We are to walk contrary to our natural nature, aren't we? Because we are now supernatural in the sense that the Holy Spirit lives within us, dwells within us, and now we as individuals in Christ can walk contrary to the manner in which people of the world walk. And in verse 15, and as the people were in expectation, they now knew that something was going on. And all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether that he, wow, I finally hit puberty, um, whether he might be the Christ. And John answered them all saying, I guess he anticipated this, question, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Now he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn but the shaft he will burn with unquenchable fire. Judgment. Again, this is so interesting to me. He is saying Messiah is coming, and I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. I baptize you with simple water, but when he comes, that is Messiah comes, he's going to baptize you first with the Holy Spirit, which came at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 where the Holy Spirit was given to each and every follower of Jesus Christ. As a believer in Jesus Christ, the moment I become a believer, the Spirit baptizes me uh, into the body of Christ. He dwells within me. And as time is of necessity, at times of necessity, He can then fill me to overflowing to serve and to be the witness in which God has called me to be. But then he says, and of fire. There are some who simply believe, well, that has to be speaking of the fires in which appeared upon each one of their heads. No, that would be inaccurate, I believe. I believe the answer to the question concerning the fire is actually found in the book of Malachi. In the book of Malachi, I believe we will discover what that fire actually speaks of. And if you'll turn with me there to Malachi chapter 3, verses 2 through 4. In the promise of the coming of the Messiah, which Malachi is littered with in the sense that it is all over the text, we've gone through Malachi as a church, we've looked at these passages together, but not only is he going to baptize those who are his with the Holy Spirit, but what about this fire? Well, I believe this is referring to what Malachi stated in chapter 3, verses 2 through 4. I'll read them to you. But who can endure the day of his coming? Interesting word, the day of his coming. Who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. After the word fire in the Greek in Luke 3, 
he talks about one going out with a widowing fan. A widowing fan was this. As individuals would gather their grain, there was a portion of the grain that they wanted to keep and there was a portion of the grain that they wanted to do away with. And so there was a process necessary of separating the two. And the widowing fan was used for just that. They would often go to a place where there would, it would be known for a breezy or windy atmosphere. And they would take the widowing fan, which is more like a little shovel, and they would throw the grain up in the air and the heavier grain that they wanted to keep would fall straight because it was heavy. And the shaft portion that they wanted to get rid of would kind of blow away and have, make a ring around the portion in which they wanted to keep and then they would just sweep up the chaff and they would burn it. This is again the separation, the true from the false. We see that illustration all through the Gospels and Jesus Christ coming is going to separate the true from the false. This is the fire that he speaks of that will separate the true from the false. And as believers in Jesus Christ, if you look into 1 Corinthians 3, very interesting, will pass through fire and those things that are of stone will, will remain and those things that are perishable things will be consumed by the fire, but we yet shall be saved. Very interesting passage. I throw that out for your consideration to look at on your own. But as we continue here, we see that he has come with this separation, this judgment in mind, saving those who are his, and then therefore those who reject him will also be dealt with in the formal uh, coming of the Messiah. This began in his first coming and will climax at his second. If you read Matthew 25, you'll notice that after the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's a separation judgment of the sheep and the goats very interesting in the wake of what we have just read. Continued that same uh, understanding, that same doctrine of separation from the true from the false, etc. And then it goes into the millennial kingdom. It also goes into the uh, new heavens and new earth. John, or Luke now takes us from one to the next, from John to Jesus in the next few verses. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people, that is John. But Herod the Tetrarch, who he had introduced earlier, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, for Herod had taken his brother's wife as his wife, John rebuked him for it and was executed for it. John was executed when the daughter of Herodias danced for Herod. And then at the end of the dance, he had promised her anything if, he, if she would dance for him, and she asked for the head of John the Baptist. His brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all that he locked John in prison. And now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens opened. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him bodily in the form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And this, of course, brings us now to the commission of the Messiah's ministry. Jesus now begins his public ministry, calling people to, to true repentance through him. 
and salvation in him alone. And we'll continue that next time as we pick it up in chapter 4. This is a fantastic passage that shows us the triune nature of our God. For as Jesus was being baptized, the Son was there fully uh, in view, and all flesh saw the salvation. The Holy Spirit ascended upon him, descended upon him in the form of a dove, while the, our Heavenly Father spoke and stated, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. All three of the Trinity found in one place at one time. What a text to show us the triune nature of our God. As we consider the coming of Jesus Christ as not only one who God has sent into the world to save the world, but also one who is now forcing people to decision. There isn't a middle road when it comes to Jesus. He himself said, either you're for me or you're against me. In the arrival of Jesus Christ, the love of God had been fully demonstrated in a manner that can never be changed by history. The compassion in which Jesus had upon people was paralleled by no other. The only ones that Jesus ever truly raised his voice to was the religious leader and maybe Peter once. But he was approachable by anyone. He says, all are welcomed at my father's table. God said of him, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And John was sent before him to prepare the way for him, to make things straight. And in the arrival of the Messiah, two things occurred. The world has been placed on notice that they will one day be held accountable by a sovereign God. And secondly, that he loves us so much that the manner in which he showed that love was to send his only begotten son, that whomsoever shall believe in him shall not die, but have everlasting life. Not only is God going to bring in an era of judgment, but he's also going to restore and set things right to the way he always intended them to be. So when it's all said and done and we come to the end of Revelation chapter 22, God can say in a profound way, It's all good, man. It's all good. 